0: Welcome to the Flow State Performance Podcast. Created for those committed to mastery and success. Coming to you from Manly, Australia, we break down the science and philosophy
1: of optimal performance so you can unleash your potential. Hey, welcome to the show. This is the Flow State Performance Podcast, and I am your host and the founder of Flow State Collective, Jiro Taylor. Today, I'm talking to a good friend of mine. He's one of the most fascinating blokes I know, and he's called Simon Thakur. I don't exactly know how to define him and what labels to use, so I won't bother trying. Um, But Simon strikes me as somebody that has spent his entire life curiously learning about alternative traditions, states of being, states of mind, philosophies, schools of thought, and he's a very fascinating bloke. Um, I know that he's gone very deep in studying Buddhism, Taoism, uh, Chinese medicine, various martial arts. He's lived in uh, Thailand. He's spent some time in Japan. And I also know that he's very interested in this concept of rewilding uh, and also ancestral living. He's got a website called ancestralmovement.com.au and his, his philosophy we'll get into during this conversation. But his philosophy is really about how we live our most natural lives, how we connect with with nature. And uh, yeah, I'll leave it there because this conversation, it's longer than an hour, so buckle up. But it's really a fascinating, what I hope is a fascinating conversation for you, um, because we really just freestyle and cover a lot of ground and really get deep into some alternative philosophies about how we can live our best lives. And if you're interested in Um, meditation, Buddhism, uh, philosophy, Eastern philosophy in particular and you're interested in the concept of rewilding, then make sure you stick around and listen to the end because there's some real nuggets in this show. Enjoy. Welcome to the Flow State Performance Podcast. I'm here today with Simon Thakur. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks, Jero. Cool. So I met Simon um, a couple of years ago. We went on a, a movement camp where we were in the bush and we were learning a little bit about rewilding, a little bit about ancestral movement or natural movement, a little bit about bush tucker. And uh, Simon was there giving a workshop on natural movement, I seem to remember. Um, tell us a little bit about how How do you describe yourself when people say, what do you do, Simon?
0: Oh, man, <laughs> that's like my most dreaded question. <laughs> um, these days... I, um, I normally start by saying that I teach uh, movement and meditation and then that I'm trying to more and more bring those things back into uh, natural environments so that, you know, so it's like another thing I like to say is connecting to nature or reconnecting to nature, starting with our bodies.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. Wow. So,
1: so when you say meditation, are you teaching a formal kind of meditation that people would recognize, or is this more of an embodied blend with the movement practices that you do?
0: Yeah. It's, um, so in the past, I've taught really traditional, uh, yoga and um, Chinese things. So, and by yoga, I mean meditation, like, you know, according to the eight limbs, like Mm -hmm. pranayama and sense withdrawal and concentration and stuff. Um, And then within the Chinese traditions, uh, like different sorts of standing meditation and, you know, again, they. but the thing is, so what we do now, I often try to, Give a general idea of like, okay, in some of the Indian traditions, you've got these things with breath awareness, with maybe visualization, with concentration on different parts of the body, with inducing the relaxation response, with, uh, you know, aligning the central axis with gravity and, and developing relaxation and the combination of activation and relaxation you know, going hand in hand and working on that. And then I'll say, and look, there's, here we've got similar things in the Chinese traditions, here we've got similar things in the Tibetan traditions, and here's the basic neuroscience which can help us understand, like, what's going on in the brain, what's going on in the heart with the hormonal system, the endocrine system, the nervous system, and so on. And so then I've, I lay out the common ground in lots of these traditions and then sort of go from there so sometimes I'll teach really traditional, you know, I mean sometimes I'll teach really traditional like Theravada Buddhist stuff which is, which is one of my main practices and then other times it might be really traditional in the terms of like some sorts of Chinese Qigong sort of work which, you know, who knows actually how traditional it is. Maybe some of these things are only 100 years old. Yeah, maybe that's right. Maybe they're several thousand years old. But, um, and then other times it's just, you know, we're in the bush. It's just like, feel, sense the sky, you know, and listen to all the sounds all around you and feel your heartbeat, you know? So it's like, you'll find that in all sorts of traditions, but also it's just a really basic, basic thing.
1: mm. Yeah. So you, you strike me as a guy that is, is very curious about the world and very curious about, I guess, connecting with, with self and with nature and really what strikes me is that you draw from many different traditions. And it seems to me that you've spent you've deliberately chosen to spend your life learning from different lineages, different spiritual paths, different schools of philosophy. Um, how how did this come about? Was were you always wired this way? What was what was your what were you like as a child?
0: Yeah. Um well, I'm kinda lucky like in the I was exposed to this sort of stuff really early. Like, I wasn't taught, you know, like I didn't have a a teacher until much later, but like my dad is from North India. Um, And so, when I was really small, like when I was like three or something, one day he like saw that I had quite flexible hips and he was like, Oh, you know, you should, you know, put your right foot on top of your left thigh and then put your left foot on top of your right thigh. And and then I had no idea what he was doing. And He's like, you then put your hands on your knees like this, and now close your eyes. And then he's just like <laughs> laughing at, because he'd never he'd never done any yoga or anything. But so, you know, from a really early age, I, I knew that there was something called yoga. And then I liked reading. Like my family, we'd go to the public library once a week. You know, so it was like cool. Like I'd see you know maybe there are books on yoga and I've got books on yoga and one of my best friends his dad was a judo black belt and so a bunch of us did judo and um and so through that friend like we all got into like ninjas and stuff when we were like 5 years old and and so then like you know the combination of like yoga and ninjas and samurai and then buddhist monks and then like the lord of the rings <laughs> all together sort of gave me this lifelong obsession for like forests and meditation and weird martial arts and
1: that's yeah. awesome I was having a podcast chat with a guy called Justin Alexander who is a uh, very into outdoor survival and spending time in nature by himself mm. and I was talking to him about his childhood and his influences and he says that most of his heroes were mythological yeah um, like yeah. the like the characters in Last of the Mohicans, for example, and right. Dances with Wolves. Like he yeah. really was inspired by the, those sort of Native American characters. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. It's definitely a parallel with you.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I think Tolkien would be happy. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah, yeah. That's yeah. awesome. So, yeah. one, when did you like? When did you begin actually taking this a little bit further? When did you decide that you were gonna really go deep? Um,
0: I think, um, you know, when I was in high school, I sort of went through a brief phase of trying to like, trying to get into sort of, you know, sports and, um, what sort of car would I like and, you know, those sorts of things. Um, and then that only lasted a couple of years and then like, right when I finished year 12, um... I, um, I did this, uh, exchange year called, um, AFS, um, where you, you go and you do a year of homestay in another country and go to school and stuff. And my mum had actually done it when she was a teenager. And, um, and so, yeah, I did this exchange year to Thailand. And the only things I knew about Thailand were, um, that, you know, they had Muay Thai, like Thai kickboxing and, um, and Buddhism. And, um, mom and dad were like, Oh, you're interested in Buddhism. Oh, cool. Well, we've got a few, we've got a few books. And, um, you know, they were like translations of, um, the Dhammapada, like some real old, simple old Buddhist stuff. And I was reading them and I was just like, man, like this guy was so onto it, you know, as a sort of teenager disillusioned with the modern world and thinking, Oh, it's all, you know, rubbish and not real. And just, The rat race and all that sort of stuff, and then reading, reading the words of the Buddha and going, wow, like, you know, this is awesome. And so off I went to Thailand and did lots of Muay Thai and learned about Buddhism. And then um, at the end of my year, my homestay year, I um, spent about a month uh, living in a temple. You know, shaved my head and chanted the the special chants and wore an orange robe and and just lived a really beautiful simple life um yeah for about 4 or 5 weeks um in the little temple near my town like off in the off in the hills and then a couple of weeks at um this forest retreat center in south thailand and um you know started meditating meditating a lot and like you know when you first start meditating you have all sorts of crazy experiences and and that sort of thing and um and so that kind of you know it just made me gave me this knowledge that that stuff is really out there you know and in some places it's not even that big a deal it's like yeah like if you practice then you'll change yourself and if you practice certain things then you'll find you can find the source of your of your cravings for external things and you can find that they can be satisfied through you know awareness of these little subtle underlying mind body processes going on all the time, and yeah, so that was that. Like, I was super inspired after that and kind of never looked back and mm. came back to Australia. And then, shortly after that, I then met my um, first Chinese martial arts teacher, yeah, who's a, a little guy called Fei Wong who lives in Canberra, who's like you know, five foot tall big shining eyes he's a Chinese medicine practitioner and internal martial arts guy and then meeting him was like oh wow like these guys really exist you know he's not just a meditator he's like a kung fu ninja doctor (laughs) and like his physical skills and just the level of like of bliss in his face and and clarity in his eyes and like power in his body like that I after I met him I was like I stopped doing like anthropology and biology and stuff and I was like, I want to do Chinese medicine and become a Kung Fu master. And um yeah, I'm still working on it, but like, you know, yeah, it was there was those sorts of meetings. Once I met people in real life who yeah. had these skills, then yeah, I never I never looked back.
1: Wow. Okay. Yeah. So so as a teenager who had been, you know, growing up in a what sounds like a relatively normal existence in Australia and then going to Live in a monastery or live in Thailand and then live in a monastery how was it confront was it confronting was it were, were there challenges? Did you battle with your mind or do you remember no, it being yeah, quite blissful
0: no 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 like like massive battles, but the thing is i'd also been living in Thailand for a year before I went into the monastery, and so for that year, I was like one of four foreigners living in this town called Chumpon in south thailand and so everywhere i went everything i did people were like watching me and like talking about me and so everyone like across probably the whole province you know knew what me and these other three foreigners were doing every day all the time (laughs) and um so it was like really tiring and hard and like i didn't speak the language and You know, so for the first sort of four or five months, it was like just being a a young teenager in a homestay and troubles with the homestay family and all these sorts of things. So that was like heaps of ups and downs. It was really awesome but really hard. And then by the time I went to the monastery, like, you know, I'd been reading about Buddhism heaps and I'd been sort of starting to dabble in meditation. And and then once I became a monk, all of a sudden Thai society like – It was like entire culture, being a monk trumps being a foreigner. So I wasn't a foreigner so much anymore. I was a monk. Mm. And the basic rule is you don't annoy monks. Really? You don't like no one, if you're a monk and you're walking around and just not, not making eye contact with people, and plus I was living in the forest so there weren't many people around, but people just don't hassle you. Yeah. It's like uh, it, it, this person's a monk; they want peace, peace and quiet, so just give them peace and quiet, you know. So it was just a really beautiful, peaceful time. Yeah. And so, I, so
1: talk to me more about mo- this monastic life. I, I often think about how, and I don't know whether this is true, but I, I, I so, sort of romanticize the life of a monk a little bit. Yeah, me and, too. Yeah, and I and I yeah. think, oh, you know, so, sometimes it's very appealing. I remember, yeah. I remember being younger and just thinking, oh. Maybe I should just become a monk. You know, yeah, there, yeah. there is a certain appeal to it. Yeah. Um, but how romanticised was your view, and how did how did that compare to reality? Well,
0: because I was eighteen, um, it was just really cool. <laughs> it was like sweet. I'm in Thailand. Like, <laughs> got my head shaved. I've got my orange. <laughs> robe, but like, you've got you've got two sets, and then Thailand, the robes. They're not like fancy Japanese, like schmick like embroidered whatever it's like you've got an orange sheet yeah. and you wrap your sheet around yourself yeah and you've got a bowl and you walk through the village or through wherever in the morning with your bowl and they put a, the, the villagers put a bit of rice in your bowl and, and you've got a little um one of those little stacked stacked sort of metal uh they're called a tiffin. In India like and they put a little bit of food in it and so you know, it was awesome it was like I had a great little library and no one hassled me and I could read stuff and I could practice meditation and every morning you'd get up at dawn walk through the paddy fields as the mists rising off the paddy fields and the buffalo and the mountains in the distance and then you walk through the village and people give you a bit of food and they don't talk to you and then you go back and then you got the rest of the day like to meditate or read or just Yeah, and I like my little abode was a sort of two meters by three meters bamboo hut on stilts with like A-frame roof and you could like open one bit or open the whole side or open the whole thing um, and a mosquito net and a little pillow that big (laughs) and a a bamboo mat. So it was like it was just really simple and so, so satisfying because, you know, like when you're a teenager – Still now, but when you're a teenager, like, you're always trying to work out how to behave correctly. Yeah. yeah. You know, like, oh, like.
1: What do I wear? Do I... Yeah. What are the cool kids wearing? What shirt should I put Exactly.
0: On? And so the monastic lifestyle just solves all of that, solves all of those problems. Like, they even teach you how to sit comfortably and then how to stand up from sitting so you don't, like, flash your... your your genitals at people (laughs) that wouldn't be wouldn't be proper for a monk and then there's no you know you don't even have to say anything like someone can talk to you and if you're not into it you just like you just don't make eye contact and and the rules are that like oh this person's a monk they're not responding i'll just you know no worries (laughs) yeah so it's like it's quite liberating super liberating and of course it's really lonely But also like if you're a, you know, like young and like, yeah, I'm going to like going to become enlightened and want to meditate heaps and like this meditation stuff looks interesting and they're teaching me the special techniques and, you know, and then in those early days you get like, you know, like crazy experiences like your body feeling like it's enormous or the top of your head feels like it's opening up like a flower and then you read in the books that like, oh, like, the big awakenings just around the corner, kind of thing. And so it's really Yeah. It's really exhilarating. Yeah.
1: So yeah. could you have could you have stayed there for longer? Like what do you think about monastic life? Like Yeah. Do you feel like the real challenge? I think it's maybe a cliche, but they say oh the real challenge is, you know, in the real world, you know, in the in the monastery, you're you know, you're doing your thing. Yeah.
0: And and you're looked after as well in Thailand like in like Thai society Mm. sort of like Tibetan society I guess but Thai society is set up so that like the monasteries and these aren't big monasteries you know these are little little places in the in the countryside where there's like there were there were five of us living at this one that I was at three oh oh, maybe six three young kids then the abbot who was probably in his he was probably about 50 or mid-40s and then me and one other young monk yeah and so you're looked after by donations from the villagers and you know and so on so it's actually um i think it's cool i think it's really cool when a society respects introverts (laughs) and says yeah like what you guys do with your meditation trying to become relaxed trying to understand the mind and body you know like that takes dedication and it takes time and effort. And so we respect this, this tradition, enough to sustain it. And we can't all afford to do it. But in Thailand, every male, I don't know if it's still the case, this was 20 years ago, but certainly it's always been the case up till then, was that every, like, guy goes and becomes a monk for a season around the age of 20 and then they come out of that and go about the rest of their lives and um so I think it's cool that like it's just like a retreat you get the space to do your practice yeah and then if you want to you go back into the world and so for me when I left the monastery and came back to Australia and went to university and people are talking about being successful and getting a job and you know what clothes to wear and what's cool and what you know let's get pissed and all of this stuff. And I was like, whoa, like maybe I should just go back Hmm. and just do that because that felt so much more real than this. And then I met my Chinese martial arts teacher Hmm. and was like, oh, but that stuff's really cool. And I just kind of came around to the idea that like it's really nice to know that Thailand is a place in the world that I know is real and that there are these – monasteries and forest meditation centers which i know that at some point later in life if whatever happens whatever happens whatever happens that i know that if i wanted maybe i could get back there and pick that up again later on yeah once i'm sick of all this or whatever you know i I don't now i don't think i will ever do that but that was what that was what helped me reconcile that that dilemma back in those days
1: Yeah? yeah sure Sure. Yeah. Interesting, man. So so then you met your Chinese master. um, And with this guy, were you studying internal arts as well as Kung Fu? Was it Qigong and Kung Fu or was it something different? Well, Well, in China, like Kung Fu just means martial arts. Okay.
0: Really. Well, it means skill. It means development of skill. So you'd say someone has Kung Fu in martial arts
1: yeah
0: so with him yeah it was like what he called it was um internal martial arts foundation so yeah there was qigong there was meditation but like mostly it was really not glamorous and you know really horrible um like repetitive movement drills like his favorite one his favorite one was this exercise he called chicken legs which is like walking walking up and down the hall or the room or your backyard or whatever with your thighs parallel to the ground. So like, you know, legs bent 90 degrees and walking in a straight line. So not going up and down, but just Mm. walking along with turning your waist in a particular way. Um, And he was like, yeah, you need to do this one twice a day till you can't walk um, every day for two years. And then you won't ever have to do it again. Um, So it's like, yeah, horrible, horrible, Horrible stuff.
1: Yeah, sounds painful.
0: Yeah. But um, and he was like, you know, that's doing chicken legs is what will make your meditation good. Oh, really? And you'd Yeah. Yeah. So you'd say, oh, but what about my back? Or oh, I've got like problems with my feet or basically any question you asked him, he'd be like more chicken legs, more chicken legs. And it's like, I can't relax or whatever. It'd be like more chicken legs. He's like, if you make your legs strong and then your hips strong then your back will be strong then your upper body will be really relaxed then your heart will be calm then your mind will be clear right like, so it was really annoying do you still practice chicken
1: legs no nah, man <laughs>
0: <laughs> no nah, i do i do practice chicken legs but not in not that version that's <laughs> that's just like the killer version and and um yeah i intend to you know do it again one day but like the chicken legs principle is in all of the other martial arts that um yeah. that I've done since. So I still I'm still working on it, yeah. Yeah. Cool.
1: Okay, yeah. so so I can see the influence of uh, Buddhism and Taoism in your life. Yeah. Now there seems to be some other flavours in the brew, in the stew that mm. makes up you. Um, yeah. <laughs> talk to me a little bit about some of them
0: some other influences.
1: Yeah, so I know that some of the ancestral movement... Right. Um, well, first of all, can you define for us rewilding some of the people who are listening to this show, that that would be a foreign word, a foreign concept? Yeah. And that would be great to get your view on it.
0: Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure who came up with the term, but um, like it's sort of related to... And in some, in a lot of people coming out of or emerging from um, what some people call wilderness skills or survival skills or whatever, but um, but the rewilding idea, from what I understand, and you know, I'm fairly I'm fairly new to that word and to that to that culture, but I'm I'm really I'm really into it because I think it applies to a lot of what I've been working on. But the idea seems to be more like, um, well, almost like de-domesticating ourselves, right? So that's that's why there's that idea of like, sure, like rewilding can or often or usually involves things like learning how to forage again, learning the local plants in your area, learning how to live in the wild. Yeah. But then people talk about how rewilding is actually really different to survivalism because living wild is very different to survival. Survival, you're just trying to get through the day, Mm -hmm. just trying to get through the number of weeks or whatever it is until you can get back to your house, Mm -hmm. whereas rewilding is sort of more about like trying to actually know the land well enough that you're... You're working to rejuvenate the land mm. by being there.
1: So so it seems like you've got survival, which is, you know, let's find water and shelter before we die. And yeah. then you've got thrival or thriving, which is let's, let's really, like, thrive and, yeah. and make the most of life and yeah. basket weaving and skinning and using the whole of the animal and the tree and just yeah. whatever's and, involved. And, like
0: and nurturing the animal communities and nurturing the plant communities and you know um, and building human communities around that idea of nurturing the land and all of that sort of stuff and then that idea of and you know this is all very idealistic stuff right it's like it's like super philosophical and i'm not i'm not 100% convinced for myself as to like for me, I'm sort of trying to honor and reconnect with and reawaken the wild parts of myself mm. and I'm not like, you know, like I like reading books. I like, um, I don't know, all of these things. Like we're talking on Skype, you know what I mean? It's like <laughs> all of these things which are like, yeah. you know, being in a house. Like sometimes I really like being in a house. Sometimes it's the most – sometimes it, like, makes me want to tear my hair out and smash the walls down and, you know, like all of that sort of stuff. But I'm not sort of like – yeah, I guess you get the idea. There's different streams. Some people might be really hardcore, like civilization, like agriculture. A a lot of people in the rewilding world seem to be saying that, like, agriculture was the biggest mistake we ever made. And after agriculture we got, like, hierarchy and, you know – dominance and slavery and oppression of all sorts and exploitation of the world and that's what's led us to the massive Mm. destruction and you know all of this all of this stuff going on now um i'm not sure sometimes i'm a real hardliner but other times i'm not you know so
1: to me uh, rewilding really is about awareness of the ways in which we are not wild right like you said domesticated like yes, yeah. it, Like bringing an awareness to it. Yeah. So, like, if yeah. a, if a kid, you know, a, a, a child rewilding would be a child uh, putting down the PlayStation and going to play in the tree. Right. For example. Yeah. Um, and a and a and a and a parent who was conscious of that would be a parent who suggested that or came up with an activity that was kind of more organic mm-hmm. um, and didn't rely so much on on other things. Yeah but there has to be a yeah I, I you know it's it's also about a connection of with with a part of us or a, yeah. a reconnection with a part of us that is wild
0: Yeah yeah so some some the idea of like reindigenizing ourselves yeah something that other people talk about like about how to be indigenous to a place means that like it's not so much an individual thing as a cultural thing where like any indigenous culture, they know, they know their local ecosystem well enough that they can live off it and they can thrive off it and also they know the rhythms and they know the different relationships between the different animals and the different plants and stuff. They know it well enough mm. that they can look after it, mm. you know, so it stays healthy. Yeah. So that animal populations stay healthy and the plant populations and all of that. Yeah. yeah. So, I'm really, I'm really into that idea myself. You know, like I've learned in the last few years, I've learned a bit of bush tucker and, you know, just finally achieved like the ability to make fire um, and that sort of thing. Yeah. I know that like with my foraging, the next step is really to be able to forage. And, you know, I haven't even started being, being a hunter. I'm, like, I'm, I'm, I'm into the idea, but I've, I'm, again, it's that idea of, like, but for me now to hunt would kind of not be right because I can't tell how, like, I don't know which, which one's a, a pregnant female, you know what I mean? Even if it's a yabby, like, I don't know how to tell if i get this yabby that i can catch with my hand right now if i get this one maybe this is maybe this is the one that's crucial for the whole yabby population in this area you know what i mean like or if i pull up all these tubers i don't know if i've just destroyed the the population of that plant in this area like my knowledge isn't yeah isn't detailed enough so yeah, yeah. that's the next next mm, step
1: yeah interesting man interesting so mm. the, the way i see it the way I feel it is that there's a, because of the way our dominant culture has played out, there's, there's a lot of people living out there who, who are just constantly thinking all the time uh, as opposed to living through intuition or letting their instincts um, mm. run. And that's what I mean as the wild side in us, our intuition, our instincts. And what, what I've experienced in my life is that when I'm, when I'm in nature, you know, just being in nature there's there's a part of me that that becomes reactivated or it you know there's like a you know I feel re-energized I feel reinvigorated I feel reconnected so there's a part of me that comes alive that was previously being dormant because I'm whatever spending so much time on screens or living inside cubes yeah does does that resonate with you
0: absolutely so that's that's almost like more where I've been coming from long before I heard the word rewilding um with and that's where the whole you know the ancestral movement idea comes from is like going oh like like climbing trees or just walking in the bush or like walking through the bush barefoot at night off the trail while trying not to be heard by anyone you know these sorts of things where you're like doing stuff and your senses really switch on or if you're climbing like um you know if you're if you're climbing rocks and you're not like you don't have a harness or anything and you're like you know you're gripping with your fingers and your toes and you're working out all the stuff and it's like wow like this is this is what hands evolved to do and like or if you're running running through the bush and or you're running on a riverbed and somehow somehow your feet are landing in the right place you know somehow you're picking the spots to run and you're 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 doing all the stuff which like you'd never be able to think your way through it yeah you know but somehow our bodies know yeah if you're able to get out of the way yeah right yeah so that's 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 kind of how I got into this stuff is after multiple experiences like that. Like I grew up in New Zealand, so we're running around in the forest all the time. So that was just second nature. And then, you know, schooling and socialization and, you know, all this other stuff, like, and then computers and all this stuff, like got layered on top of that. And then later on when I rediscovered it, it was like, wow, like, you know, we're, we have this whole world of inherent innate knowledge which is kind of asleep, mm. and yeah, so that's kind of just like you're saying, like trying to find ways to wake that stuff up again.
1: Yeah, what what I find really fascinating is this connection between, say, the altered state of consciousness that you would have experienced when you were meditating in Thailand, mm. and the state of consciousness when you're sitting in stillness in nature with a tree, mm. for example, and perhaps the state of consciousness you have when you're doing capoeira or surfing, um, and you're not in the way of yourself, you're operating Mm. intuitively. Mm. That to me is like, well, I guess what I'm dedicating my life to explore. Uh, Right. It's, it's very fascinating to me. Yeah. What about for you?
0: Well, absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to like, I've, I'm just, trying to um work out firstly if i think they're the same like so like the meditation and the capoeira for example because I've, I've i've only surfed like three or four times in my life so i can't yeah um i don't i'm not sure about that one but i think
1: like, i think you can draw a distinction between them like this is the distinction between meditation and flow right like I spoke, I spoke to one neuroscientist the other day who said, you know, practically speaking, they're the same. I spoke to another neuroscientist a couple of months ago who said, oh, they're very different. Um, yeah. Flow has a movement component to it. Uh, flow requires sort of motor uh, movement and different neurological signature um, and then I've spoken to uh, meditation masters who have said said who have defined it very, very simply. they've said, yeah. um meditation is open awareness, flow is focused awareness
0: right, yeah, so that's where I was like that's where I was heading as I was trying to compare my memories of different states is like in in a capoeira game, when the flow happens, you're making like you're very, very active, but you, so you're making like rapid decisions, but your decisions are so rapid you're not thinking about them. If you tr- if you try and think about them, it breaks the flow, and the physical flow between you and your your person you're playing with gets broken. Mm. But you're still you're doing stuff, you're making decisions, and and it's like. It's, and so then, in the in meditation, because there's so many different kinds of meditation, but for me to like try and make a make a connection there, in my experience, is um, in the uh, um, anapanā anapanasati, the the Buddha's mindfulness of breathing um, traditions. In um, in one of the traditions that I practiced in. Uh, It's a, it's a concentration practice and you're repeatedly trying to repeatedly bring your attention over and over and over and over and over and over 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 back to the one spot. And so what's going to happen is your mind's going to be going, wanting to go all over the place and you're just bringing it back to this one spot. And then, you know, as you get more sensitive at first, you think, yeah, sure. I'm paying attention here. And then you realize, oh, but I'm actually just paying attention here like one hundredth of the time. And the other 99 hundredths of the time, I'm, I'm, my attention's everywhere else, but I keep bringing it back to here. And so then the real challenge is to bring it here or wherever your point is and not have it go anywhere else. So every instant you're like, dunk, 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 dunk back to that spot. And then when you get to that level of concentration, the feeling to me, I always compare it to like walking a tightrope like walking a tightrope while juggling or something where you have to be so onto it Mm. that you can't, you can't, you can't let your mind deviate even a tiny bit. It's trying to be on. And so then, then you get that, that feeling of like the same kind of feeling of the flow state, like Mm. exhilaration, massive relaxation. And you don't like, like rock climbing or something. You know what I mean? Mm. If it's really hairy, but you're pulling it off. That's the difference. It's really hairy and you can't afford to fuck up, but you're pulling it off. Mm. And because you're pulling it off, you're going, Yes, and it's like really, really pleasant. And you get this like crazy rush of of feelings. Oh yeah. 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 So I think I think that's probably probably counts as flow state material.
1: Wow. Okay. Yeah. So that's that's really interesting to to think about that particular technique of meditation. But is that particular technique of meditation a gateway or a stepping stone to letting go of the, the yeah, concentration?
0: Absolutely, yeah. It's like, you know, that's still what I'm talking about there is still in the actual, you know, longstanding schools of meditation that is like the, the gateway the entry point to what's called jhana or absorption or in the yogic tradition that's like after asana when your your postures really comfortable and stable and then pranayama when your breath becomes really 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 smooth and really really pleasant and then pratyahara where the senses are no longer attracted to external things the senses become really attracted to the Thing you're concentrating on, and then dharana, they compare to the the repeatedly dripping the awareness over and over and over on the same point, and then the next stage is dhyana which is when the awareness becomes a stream. Literally, they compare it to like the difference between water dripping from a crack over and over on the same point to oil dripping from a crack where it's a single stream, mm. and that that stage there jhana in the pali or dhyana in the in the yogic tradition that's like in the like for for a serious meditator which you know we don't count like for a for a serious lifelong dedicated meditator that's the beginning when you've achieved when you can put your attention somewhere and keep it there and it doesn't go anywhere else mm. right so that's it's after that like that's that's where in the buddhist tradition and the yogic tradition you start to get these really big branches where some people are like once you can do that that's the end goal and then other people are like no no once you can do that then you put that trained attention on different things like train that attention now on the heart train it on the center of the head train it on the belly train it on like gravity or all these different things and then you'll get all sorts of other stuff and then the buddhists are like no 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 the insight So concentration or tranquility then leads to insight and you develop insight by really carefully observing what happens on the edge of absorption Mm. because in absorption, the ego, the idea of the self disintegrates and then on the edge of absorption, the ego builds itself back up again and you reestablish your personality and so by really exploring that edge, you get to know how your sense of personality gets constructed and disintegrated and constructed and, dis- and disintegrated. And through that process, you get insight into the nature of reality. Like all this interesting stuff, which, you know, it's like for us, anyone who can put their attention somewhere and it stays there without leaving, like that's like, you know, that's like, that's like epic, epic powers of, of mind. But for like some of, some of the people still alive, lots of them, in the Tibetan tradition or in the Thai forest tradition or the Burmese tradition like that's actually that's like
1: that's where they start okay,
0: you're you're out of that's like you've 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 graduated high school yeah kind of thing, and now you're now you're ready to do the real stuff
1: yeah and what and what's involved in the real stuff what just i guess you have to speak anecdotally or or based on stories have you um
0: have you ever read the um the yoga sutra yeah patanjali's yoga sutra
1: yep. yeah so there's like a...
0: yeah so you know the first chapter is about samadhi which is absorption to the point that there's no longer a sense of the observer and the observed as being different things and then and then the second chapter is about sadhana about practice that's where there's the eight limbs that's where there's the thing of like oh okay if you if you read the first chapter and you have a super powerful mind then already you can just do it and then the second chapter is like yeah no but most people can't just do it so we need a progressive practice and it's like cool 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 and then um i think it's the the third chapter goes on to like once you've really developed your mind then how to take it through those last steps and then the fourth chapter is all about um like they call the cities um just really psychedelic like knowing like knowing stuff that you're not supposed to be able to know you know and like so when you read it it just sounds like fantasy
1: Mm.
0: fantasy stuff like really yeah, like, you know, like knowing, reading people's, reading people's emotional state and knowing everything, knowing, knowing everything they're feeling just by looking at them. And, you know, lots of stuff that, like, it's like, it, if you, if you, it, it would be easy to translate things as just straight up psychic powers. Yeah. And my tendency is always to try to, rationalize them according to what i know of neuroscience and stuff but it's like what what makes it really interesting for me is that from my understanding of 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 neuroscience the chapters on practice in the yoga sutra they map really really well to things of neuroplasticity and and understanding the links between the autonomic nervous system and the mind and the attention and like they're really it's like yeah you it, it's it's legit, it's totally legit. And then you get into the later chapters and it starting to get into this really wacky stuff where like, you know, like, because the, the whole thing of like, you know, time distortions, yeah. space disor- distortions, the sense of the self dissolving into the world yeah. or multiple selves or all this sort of stuff. It's like, yeah, okay. Like I can see that like if your attention is trained so strongly that it can zoom in. On things or it can filter it can block out all sorts of other stuff and you know self distortions and time distortions and space distortions it's like yeah okay crazy stuff crazy stuff can start to happen if you can train the attention
1: it's almost like it's almost like training the attention to this level um it's like the, the shortcut to that seems to be ayahuasca or plant medicine you know yeah you know one involves many 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 years of practice and the other one involves sitting down and drinking a brew but just i'm yeah. just simply talking about the 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 like what might be happening in the brain
0: right yeah 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 like the um the some... shutting the
1: shutting down of areas of the prefrontal cortex for example exactly yeah yeah yeah, right? yeah. yeah. it seems it seems to me that's that's what's happening but i mean yeah. when you start getting into time distortion and 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 space distortion and synchronicities and psychic stuff I mean, really, yeah. neuroscience has absolutely no clue. I, oh,
0: I don't think that's fair to say. I think it's it's more likely that like no, no single individual knows enough of the science to be able to give a complete picture. You know what I mean? Like, like heaps of people would say that like science can't explain. Um, you know, like. Yeah, heaps of things like the like the dissolution of the ego and whatever, and it's like yeah, but like nah, like now you get like like the the Mind and Life Institute doing like um, fMRI or electroencephalogram readings of like meditators with thirty thousand hours of experience, and like they're going oh yeah, nah, when this person does this particular practice, like their brain stuff changes in Really clear, measurable ways, and their their heart, their cardiovascular activity changes in really clear, measurable measurable ways, and their hormonal um, profile changes in really clear ways. And then you go, oh, okay, and like this person who did like, you know, sung a song over this other person, and then this other person, you know, vomited, and their twenty years of trauma and psychosis went away. It's like, yeah, no, like there is a huge amount of science which can be used to rationalize that.
1: Yeah, okay.
0: Neurons, empathy, you know, entrainment, emotional contagion, um, you know, like the the links between brain and heart and all of this stuff. It's like like I don't know enough to be able to say everything, but there's always there's all these details out there and they just, a lot of it, a lot of it just needs to be put together. Mm. I'm not saying we've got, I'm not saying that all the answers are out there, but I'm saying it's like,
1: no, I mean, then we should, the The, the neuroscientists that, that that I've spoken to and I, and I love speaking to them um, because they know amazing stuff about our brains. Um, And it seems that, you know, the the academic consensus about consciousness is, Mm. is that it's, located within the you know it's located within our own brains and as opposed to this theory of like the radio transmitter theory that consciousness right, right, right. is a field yeah that we all tune into um and it seems to me like those those who call themselves uh, inverted commas spiritual and you know th- they like to th- talk about um you know collective consciousness and things like this. And the, the academics in the neuroscience world are sort of like, you know, like, like laughing to themselves, scoffing because they've, they've shown abs- there's been absolutely no evidence of this so called collective consciousness. And when I talked, right. when I asked, when I, when I asked this guy called, called Professor Dietrich about, you know, synchronicity and, um, you know, meaningful coincidences, yeah. um, he, he kind of, he kind of laughed at me and then said, Jiro, if you want to start, if you want to do a, re, a report about synchronicities, you have to make an analysis and jot down every single time in life where a synchronicity did not occur, which is like most of your life, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah, where yeah. you walk out the house and you didn't bump into one of your best friends from yeah. from when you were five years old or whatever.
0: Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Yeah, I, I don't know my um my attitude these days is um and it's funny because you know like I'm I'm like I've spent much of my life chasing like like you know whatever you want to call them mystical experiences or you know massive like profound altered states of consciousness and all of that sort of stuff and like um but at the same time I've noticed that like I find really materialist explanations and that's when we're talking about neuroscience we're talking we're talking about like tubes of of goo right like we're not talking about electrical circuitry we're talking about tubes of pulsing Mm -hmm. goop but I find these materialist explanations often just more useful Mm. like you know and and t- to understand neuroscience to the point that it becomes useful takes you know maybe a year of reasonably not not hardcore study, but a year of like even just a year of dabbling gives you enough to be like, oh okay, there's heaps of you know like like mirror neurons right like like empathy, the neuroscience of empathy or the neuroscience of pain, um, the um, you know things like cognitive bias, like like um, pattern recognition, or like uh, like pareidolia—the the tendency to see patterns, like see faces in the trees and see faces in the clouds, and mm. all these things. Like, um, and then like that's why evolution for me is like so useful studying evolutionary biology is to go right okay let's just go okay what are the what what are the characteristics of really primitive nervous systems what are the characteristics of the nervous system and behavior of a worm or a fish or a reptile or an ape you know um and and then like what's the history of of humans and what have what have our nervous systems and our bodies evolved to be good at and like try and try and establish some basic principles to put things in context and then like start to think along those lines Mm -hmm. because you know like when you think of like group consciousness and stuff like if you had no interest in evolutionary biology you might just be like ah ah it's rubbish but then if you go no hang on we're a social primate species, we've evolved to be massively attuned to other members of our group to the point where we're picking up their smells, we're picking up like huge amounts of information from each other's body language and tone of voice and all of this sort of of stuff to the point where like what we know, like what we think we're aware of, Is maybe like this tiny amount, but what we're actually aware of about each other is this huge, huge, huge amount. And you don't need, you just don't need in that situation any idea of anything supernatural or whatever. So it's almost like, almost like my attitude now is that like the material world is magic. Mm. You know what I mean? We don't need extra layers of magic because like the fact that somehow consciousness is associated with pulsing tubes of goo in this, like this hairy bag here, like that's like, that's magic. <laughs> that's, like, that's like so much magic. <laughs> yeah. Right there.
1: You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. Yeah. I do know what you mean. Yeah. So do you feel like the supernatural explanations of things have been man's attempt to, rationalize in a world where we couldn't have a look at these pulsing tubes of goo in the past depends kind of
0: depends which me you're asking <laughs> in a way yeah you know what i mean like yeah. I'll, I'll often kind of be like well here's some interesting science that's related to that topic and then i'll also be like really curious about what the people in the Amazon or indigenous Australians or, you know, what do the Maori have to say about this? Like what do what do the Kalahari Bushmen think? Mm. You know what I mean? And go like, well, we're living, we're partly living in the three-dimensional physical world, but we're almost mostly living in a world of stories, right? Mm. And so how useful is that story or how beautiful is that story? And if it's like a really beautiful story, then, that 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 helps people live by and live a good life you know i think i i think that's um that's so important
1: mm. and
0: like i like like the scientific materialist story of like in the evolution of life on earth and you know the complexity theory and like the interaction of molecules and the geometric spirals of dna and cells and the working of the cell and all that stuff i think it's really beautiful and so that's part of why i'm reeling really into it because it's like it's not it's not a dull it's not a dull story at all it's like mm. it's so rich and so cool and so beautiful that it's like great but any other story which like gets me excited from its poetry or its whatever or even just its functionality um i think is i think that's the the idea of what's real or not i think is is you ah. know, like a story a story right. is as real as it is to the person who Who's telling it or listening to it or whatever you know?
1: Yeah, yep, I know what you mean. So, yep. this concept of of reality is mm. Mm, subjective. Yeah, mm, stories. That's yeah. that's very interesting. Well, yeah. you mentioned a, a, the concept of of living a good life. Like, what what does it mean to you to live a good life or or to live your best life? Like, what what does that sort of language mean to you? Um,
0: so. You know, like um, all sorts of you know, kind of cliched ideas come into my mind, like, uh, like you know, a life that's full of of, of 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 beauty and and love and um and you know, community is is at this time in my life, I've, I've realized how communities like the most important thing i didn't used to be like that i used to think that like individual experience was was the most important but now i'm sort of coming around to to community and so i don't know man like like i kind of i kind of feel like humans are um yeah it's a tricky one because then you start talking across the board you know like but we're we're explorers but we're, we're we're appreciators you know we're 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 um, expressors, creators. expresses and creators, totally. Yeah, so at, at different times I have toyed with the idea that, like, it's it's our job here to to worship, you know, and I sort of, like, have to be careful who's listening. <laughs> but, like, I kind of feel like, you know, we've got to this point where we can get we've reached this ability to conceive at a level at which you just you if you if you have the time for it then you just like go wow you know like this is just you know and and you get that sense of like whatever that that sort of religious feeling like that sense of divinity and Hmm. you know just like reverence and so at times I go oh like I just want I just feel like that's the most important thing, but, um, man, like what's a good life. That's just,
1: (laughs) for me, it's like, yeah, like maybe that, that is the koan. Maybe that is the riddle. Totally. Hey, yeah, 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 yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like I just, I just, I just love, I just love this planet we live on and the, you know, the, the beauty of all the living things and, trying to so now like in terms of like okay how do I fix the bits of life which I feel are not as good as they could be it's like okay well trying to create communities based around love of the living world you know where we where we're all like trying to be good to each other and trying not to um you know trying not to ruin it for anyone else Um, surprisingly hard to do, but, uh, you know, just the same, Like that's, that's why this whole thing of like trying to get back to the land that just feels like, I don't know, like this, it's hard to reconcile, isn't it? That we've like, we've, we've woken up this, almost this greediness for experience in ourselves. And that's, that's, that's a part of our nature now. And so I guess maybe that's maybe that's where the the Buddhism and all of that stuff maybe that's where that comes from they worked out that we were greedy for experience and so how can we have amazing 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 satisfy that curiosity without having to you know destroy anything or something like that I don't know man
1: I mean like w- wouldn't Buddha just answer that question like how do we live our good life wouldn't wouldn't the Buddha you know the original dude um, who was basically concerned with the cessation of suffering wouldn't he answer the question well to live your best life you've got to figure out how to stop suffering
0: yeah and also how to help others suffer less Mm. yeah yeah Yeah. but you know like this is another cool thing that i'm thinking about all the time now like with this growing interest and um, meeting more people and learning more um, within this idea of rewilding, and learning about indigenous um, cultures of different sorts, and this idea that like a good a good life can just be having a really clear sense of our place in the world and having a really clear and strong felt sense of relationship with all the other creatures living around us, mm. you know, like this idea that like when you, when you, if you live in a place for a while and you see a, a bird, that it's not just a bird, it's that bird. Mm. And then when you see it the next day, you're like, hey, there's that little bird, <laughs> and, you know. And like a tree it's not just a tree a hill's not just a hill it's that tree on that hill that it's got its own thing and you know it and then if you have a kid like your kid knows that tree and everyone knows that tree and that might be the grandmother tree and that might be the great-grandfather tree and you know and then the, then the whole land gets filled up with stories again mm-hmm. like it like it always was mm-hmm. and like it isn't anymore in our current world and we've forgotten that it used to be. And so I sort of have this idea now that like the Buddha was already reacting to a really a sick society, a disconnected society where there were kings and princes and slaves and poor people, you know, and all of this. Like, and they were agriculturalists, they were city builders they were living in, in walls, closed off from the world. And so they weren't, you know, like I've got – and I'm not convinced either way, but I've got this feeling that, yeah, okay, like domesticated humans living in rooms and stuff who are disconnected from our food sources and disconnected from all the creatures around us, we don't feel at home anymore, you know. Mm. And so something like what the Buddha did is just trying to feel at home in the world. Mm. You know, and maybe, and I've been, you know, met a few people like um, recently who are telling stories about, you know, really old indigenous cultures where the idea of suffering is different because it's just like they're, because they're properly at home. Yeah. You know, like they have yeah. relationships with everything. And so I'm, I'm thinking along these lines these days, and it's quite yeah. an interesting one to try and try and work out.
1: That's interesting because I, th- I think like the, the worst thing that you could do to some original people is take them away from their land and their family it's mm. it's that's like that's like torture it's yeah. like the most painful thing you could do even if you were feeding them and you know what i mean right. and um yeah i think that's interesting this idea of away from home I, yeah. I was i was reading a meditation book by a guy called lawrence lashan and he said that uh he gathered many, many scientists who were all meditators and they were solving the they were asking each other the question, Why do we meditate? And they were going all in a circle and they couldn't converge on a central answer. It was all disparate until one person piped up and said, I meditate to come home. Right. And at that moment everyone in the room just started nodding in, yeah, in, in yeah, yeah. agreement. It was like totally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Yeah, fully. That's maybe that's it. A, A life, a life well lived is a life where we, where we're at home.
0: Yeah. So, you know that that gets back to the um to my why I've like you know why I called my website Ancestral Movement and why of all the things that one can do and all the angles that one could push, like I'm pushing this like ancestral idea is this idea that like. We as a culture, and you know, I can't speak for everyone, but like like when I was in school, I learned history, and history spanned like six thousand years. And before that was prehistory, and prehistory was just this kind of like blah cavemen, something, something, dunno. And then we started building cities and da, da, da and that's all cool. But like we've lost our sense of ancestry. And if you look at the indigenous cultures, like taking them away from their land, it's taking them away from their ancestral land because the land is full of the stories of ancestors. Mm. And in a culture like an earth-based culture where people were actually living on the land with the land, they were also and are also seeing death and bodies decompose and things growing out of the of where the bodies decomposed Mm. and walking the same circuits year after year and so like you know you'd you'd know also that your ancestors literally are in the land and in the plants and in the air you know like physically as well as you know spiritually like the land is full of the stories of your ancestors like that and you know when your grandfather dies the stories of your grandfather are still there because your grandfather walked the same the same paths that you're still walking you know so it's like this this idea that oh okay connection to ancestry is one of the real ways of like this idea of home is mm. very much associated with the idea of ancestry. And so That's what right. I've been trying to do is is put more and more and more and more and more of the stories of my own individual ancestry, but also the ancestry of our species into my experience of the body. Yes. You know, so when I feel and look at my hands, I I don't just take for granted that this is what a hand is. I try and see and feel the history of my hands and looking at like, you know, looking at the the history of four limbs, you know, and like the history of spines and go, oh yeah, the fish with the ribcage and the, the first vertebrates and the first things that have a mouth, you know, and the first things to develop eyes and the first things to start crawling on land and the first things to start climbing trees and the first things to develop a a furry a furry body rather than scales and warm blood and all of these things. And so that then then I feel in my body more at home on the earth and I feel like, yeah, like my people have been here for a long, 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 long time and all I have to do is just look or feel or sense my own body to know how completely at home I am here, mm. you know, so... It's still trying to make up for something that's been lost because I think in any healthy culture, everyone would that would that would just be a given,
1: hmm. you know,
0: that we've always been here and,
1: hmm.
0: and we're totally at home. But, um, yeah, I feel like that's that's another part of it is, um, is actually, and this is something that one of my one of my friends, um, told me that, um, when he was, uh, doing a lot of stuff out in, I think it was the Kimberley and he was, you know, he's a, he's a white guy, um, Jeff Berry, I'm not sure if you know Jeff, but um, he was asking, asking these guys, like, what, can, what should we do, like, for, to help, you know, to be in solidarity with Indigenous Australians and what should we do to try and repair some of the damage that's been done here and to try and live, live better on this land? And, and um, these, these elders up there were saying, like, you need to learn your story you know you need to find out who your grandparents were who were your great grandparents like where do you where do you come from what kind of people are you you know like what brought you here like what's the story of you guys becoming here because that's your dreaming you know and we've all kind of we're so fresh and new that we don't think it's important anymore but it's like yeah it's um
1: huh it's a
0: great source of wisdom you know
1: yeah yeah, I mean it's our it's our roots, isn't it? I mean, yeah. we, when I think about ours as a culture, just broad brush Western world, so much immigration that's happened. We, we're all displaced. Yeah, and I just I, ju- I just think about a, a a tree that's been ripped out of its roots. Right, you know. And yeah. We whereas you look at those ancient traditions, the the original people of Australia, and you have got forty thousand years of yeah of ancestry that they yeah. can trace yeah yeah it's so different, it's so different. Man, can you give us um, a few ideas in terms of uh, resources or very inspirational books that someone who's listening might might get their hands on?
0: Whoa.: um, <laughs> Yeah, okay. One, like just on the topic of what we're, what I was just talking about, um, one really cool one uh, that I read a few years ago is called "Your Inner Fish." The mm. 350 million year history of the human body or something. Um, Your Inner Fish, the author's name is Neil Shubin. Um, so that's a cool one. Um, um, another great one, okay, on the the basic neuroscience of, of everything to do with the body and communication between bodies and all of that sort of stuff is called um, The Body Has a Mind of Its Own. Have you read that one?
1: No, who's that by?
0: um by a science journalist called Sandra Blakesley. Yeah. Yeah, the body has a mind of its own, it's fantastic, you'll love it. It's like really accessible neuroscience, but it's like Yeah. It helps you understand so much like everything from like reiki to meditation to you know qigong like yeah.
1: Yeah, okay. Yeah. I'm going to get that one now. Yeah, awesome, no. man. And and for people looking f- uh, to learn more about your stuff um, tell us about your website and tell us about any re- events or retreats that you've got coming up.
0: Okay, um, yeah, so my website's ancestralmovement.com. Um and I can be pretty lazy with putting stuff up there. There's a lot there's a lot there that I've that I've written over the years and quite a lot of videos and stuff. Um, but uh, we've been having a lot of Fairly, fairly active discussions on the on the ancestral movement Facebook group that's going on at the moment. Um, and can anybody join that? Yeah, yeah. Anyone can join who's interested. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um. So the the whole the thing with the ancestral movement is just this link of like embodied practice, uh, neuroscience, linking the traditional practices, whether it's yoga or Taoism or. Um, animal mimicry and indigenous cultures, and um, then the science of empathy, um, and how these are all related. So, um, yeah, just that whole thing of tracing the ancestry of, in the body and, and all of that. Um, but yeah, if anyone wants to wants to check it out, then they can read the read read on the site what what it's all about. There's you know years of years of obsessive research in there already. <laughs>
1: Um, Mate, I'm sure it's all fascinating stuff. Yeah, and are, but, um, are, you, are you running these quarterly retreats?
0: Yeah, yeah. So I've been running these retreats every three months with, um, with my good friend Craig, Craig Mallett, who um, he's just heading off overseas really soon now. So, so we haven't announced any dates for them yet for this year. But I'm just because, you know, we've moved out of Canberra and now we're down the south coast and just trying to work out um, when's going to be good. So, um, yeah, in Araluen in New South Wales, where we, we camp in the bush for like five or six days, the last one was for 10 days. And, um, we built a mad jungle gym out there and there's a beautiful river and we do all sorts of movement stuff and meditation stuff and get guest teachers in to teach us bushcraft and, you know, rewilding and foraging and dancing and, um, making stone tools and all sorts of cool stuff. It's 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 really fun. Um, really you've, cool. been,
1: you've been you've been putting I know, off I know, I know, I know. I'm i due. I, I definitely
0: want to yeah. come. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the next one will probably be in April, I think. Um, but you'll have to get back to me on that. Yeah. Otherwise, okay. I'll be I'll be teaching workshops in Melbourne and Sydney and um, Newcastle coming up, and probably Byron again later on in the year. And yeah.
1: Awesome, awesome. Yeah. Cool, man. So we'll wrap up the the podcast interview there. And thank you so much for for being on the show. It's been really, really interesting. It's been like having a... I hope the viewers, uh, the listeners feel like they've just been listening in on a good yarn between two good friends. Wow. How do you enjoy that, guys? Simon blows my mind sometimes with his breadth of knowledge. And I really like the way when you ask him a question, he really searches inside himself for a genuine, authentic response. He's a, he's a guy who really walks the talk, and he's an encyclopedia of knowledge when it comes to the human body, our minds, and Eastern philosophy. And it's really interesting seeing how he's blending movement with immersion in nature, with neuroscience, to me, that's a fascinating combination. So make sure you check out his work. I'll put links uh, in the show notes so you can check out his work. Um, Otherwise, you can go to Ancestral Movement Facebook page, ancestralmovement.com.au and really keep an eye out for the retreats that he runs um, every quarter because I've heard that they're amazing and I really plan to get myself to one. Um, On another note, Check out Flow State, theflowstateacademy.com. If you are the founder of a business, if you're an entrepreneur, if you like adventure, if you are really determined to achieve peak performance in different areas of your life, if you see the value in community, if you want to network with other like minded people, and if you just want an awesome community, family to be a part of, that's what I'm creating with the Flow State Academy. Um, it's really going to be a potent combination of of community, of networking, of idea sharing, creative brainstorming, along with peak performance training and adventure, shared experiences. If that sounds exciting to you, it sounds exciting to me, but that's probably because I made it. Um, but if it sounds exciting to you, please share it around with people that you might know and have a look at the website, theflowstateacademy.com. Limited spots for this year, only a dozen. And next year I'll be opening it up to a, to a wider number of people. Um, so if you're interested, just apply on the website. Until next time, see ya. Thanks for listening to the Flow State Performance Podcast.
0: Check us out at www.flowstateperformance.com for more inspiration to unleash your potential.